If you've been thinking about wanting to start a podcast but not sure where to get started, I have some news for you. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast as well with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi gang, Donna here. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Steve Gamlin. Some of you may know him as the Motivational Firewood Guy. While he has published four books, has a thriving YouTube channel, Life Wasn't Always So Perfect, which brings us to his better two moment. There was a time when he realized his life wasn't so satisfying. He was 35 when he decided to blow up his 10-year radio career. His marriage was crumbling, and he was also heavily in debt. For a long time, he regretted what he did, but one day realized it was a life-changing stepping stone, and we discuss how his journey and what happened to change his view about his choice. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing fine. So um, let's talk about this little better two moment of you being 35 years old. You got a 10-year radio career. So tell us about your radio career. How's this going? How great is it? Are you meeting people? What's going on? Uh, I had a great radio career from about 1992 to 2002. It was uh, 10 years of my life. I worked 15 years worth of hours and ground myself right into the dirt. Uh, I was burned out physically, mentally, emotionally. Uh, at age 35, I just blew it all up. My marriage was already circling the bowl. So we just rode right out, that right out with the tide as well. So I blew up my career, my marriage, and my financial stability all at age 35, early midlife crisis. And what made you decide that I'm just done with radio? Were you done with radio at that point? Radio was actually done with me. Um, in my 10 years that I was part of the industry, after the first two years, the radio station got sold. We all got fired. Okay. I sat basically in the dark in my living room for six months, picked up another radio job, worked there for three years. They got sold. We got fired. Right before we found out we had won the biggest radio production comedy award the station had ever won. So that was about an eight month sit in the shadows of the living room without even applying for unemployment because I was yeah. just too embarrassed or, you know, pride and all that crap that gets in your head. Then I landed in radio uh, here in the Lakes region of New Hampshire, which is a gorgeous area for four years. And I was just fried. I was far from home, sleeping up there two nights a week. And then somebody came to me one day and said, Ooh, did you hear about Scott, the owner? Yeah, he's going through a divorce. He might have to sell the radio stations. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. I was working six, seven days a week. I was DJing weddings on the weekends. I was absolutely fried. And then in a very, very short, abrupt window of time, decided to end radio, which led to the falling apart of my marriage, which led to, I, I legit could have filed for bankruptcy. I was in that much debt. And I didn't. And I just landed in the ashes for about a year, year and a half. So... Did you want to always be a disc jockey or excuse me, on air personality as we're there oh, now? I know, now. right? You, you got to be so careful now. <laughs> what we call everybody. You know, when I was 10 years old, I saw this TV show called WKRP in Cincinnati and I get enough birthday candles to remember 
that radio show. And I saw this guy named Dr. Johnny Fever who wore jeans and t-shirts, barely shaved. He wore sunglasses indoors, which I just thought was the coolest thing in the world. And he played records for a living and he talked in a microphone. And at 10 years old, I said, someday I want to do that. And, and I want to be an entertainer. And I also wanted to be a teacher at the time, but not a traditional classroom setting teacher. But I wanted to teach people and be funny and tell stories and be around music when I was 10 years old in roundabout ways. Every yeah, single thing I wanted as a kid yeah. has come true. Do you, do you know that WKRP, I don't know if it still exists, but did, that it actually does exist? Yes, it was based on a, a real station I've heard. Yeah, a new a real station in North Vernon, Indiana. That is an AM radio station. I used to work for the sister station WINN. Uh, when 106, which I don't think exists anymore, but um, yeah, it, the sister station was WKRP. Wow, in North I Vernon, love Indiana. that. I absolutely love that. You know, the more truth because we all have the stories, mm -hmm. and and every single I used to watch that, and I think, well, radio could never really be like that. Oh, it is, and more. The first time I ever, I guess I was in four, about nine or ten, and. I was one of those latchkey kids and I, the disc jockey played something. It was AMWTIX in New Orleans. And I called and I talked to him and I talked to him for like, I guess an hour, which I'm sure he should not have been talking to me for an hour. And I guess I sounded <laughs> older than I was because he thought I had a great voice. And wow. I mean, I didn't really think about it though. It was just like, oh, wow, cool. I'm on the radio. And he played me on the radio and I thought that was awesome. But I never, it wasn't like you. I wasn't, I didn't inspire, aspire to be a disc jockey. I left into it. Yeah. So. The funny part is uh, just with insecurity, lack of confidence, all these things, I was on the radio for 10 years. I actually only spoke during those last two years. I was an off-air rock morning show producer, comedy writer, production guy, and copywriter for most of those times because I didn't have the confidence to get on air. You know, for those eight years, it yeah. was still in my headphones going, oh, is that what I saw? Oh, my God. Yeah. Shut up. Why is, it that, why is it that most people that are in radio – don't, you know, if you talk to them, they're like, I hate my voice. I really hate my voice. Yeah. Did you, did you go to school for being a disc jockey or? I went to broadcast school just south of Boston, the summer of 92. There's a place called Connecticut School of Broadcasting, pretty well known in the industry. And I went there for the, I was the graduating class of summer 92 days because the night people took twice as long to graduate. Yeah. So for $4,000 that I borrowed from my grandfather. I went to broadcast school. And the whole reason I even actually went to school was I had a friend of mine who saw me living broken, depressed on my grandfather's couch at age 24. Had already graduated college, summa come this close, which was always my dad's favorite joke. And I was just sitting there. No idea what I wanted to do with my life. Not passionate about anything. And this friend kept asking me, why didn't you ever go after being on the radio? And finally, I just got sick of it. I'm like, well, I guess I'll go try. And Borrowed four grand from my grandfather, went to school, got an internship a month later and drove to my friend's house because I hadn't seen him all summer. And he said, well, where you been? I said, radio school. He goes, no, did you get a job? I said, well, an internship, it might lead to a job at a radio station we'd grown up listening to. Cool. And three weeks later, that friend died. Oh, sorry. And it took, oh no, no worries. I know. It took me the 10 years of radio to understand. And when I left, I finally got it. I was sitting on a stage in front of 15,000 people watching a fireworks show after I just introduced a band of very cool friends of ours. And I'm looking up at the sky and I actually was crying sitting on the front of the stage because I knew radio was coming to an end. 
and I was so burned out. And I looked up and I actually talked to my friend. And I said, man, can you believe this? I said, 10 years, man, I'm sitting on stage in front of 15,000 people. Thank you. Yeah. And I took that a couple of years later when I became a speaker. I said, I want to be that friend for other people. And that's why I'm still here doing what I'm doing. That's awesome. That is, that is awesome. Um, one thing I, w- I will say, everybody thinks radio is very glamorous. Know. You know, it's so cool to be on radio. <laughs> and I have to say, I was in the middle of a cornfield at one station and the other station, I was out in the middle of the boondocks in the bayou when I worked in <laughs> New Orleans. So, and I was making five bucks an hour. So if you, if you think radio is glamorous, especially if you're starting out, no. Yeah. I, I had a cousin of mine one time, and, and we were 60 miles from where I lived at the time at, at the uh, the last group I was in. He says, oh, 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 you know, cousin Steve, I want to be in radio someday. I want to come up and, and watch what you do and see how cool it is. And within 45 minutes, he goes, is this it? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I've already read the weather twice. There was no traffic reports because it was yeah. such a small town. Uh, I said, unless you want to hear about the pumpkin festival. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And he goes, Oh, I, I think I'll go home now. He <laughs> like, drove an hour and a half each way to hang out for 40 minutes and, and bailed. And he did wind up getting into radio for a couple of years, but he, you know, he, he got it, but yeah. then it wasn't glamour. It's hard work. And so many people go, Oh my gosh, DJs always sound so happy. I go, yeah, between the songs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, They're it's paid a- to sound happy. It's a very lonely job. And I, I have to say the first station I worked at when we got to play everything we wanted. I mean, we got to, you know, we got to pick everything. We got to program the station, which was awesome. The second station I worked at was all computerized. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so basically I'm a, a glorified button pusher. And, you know, when somebody calls for a request, it's kind of like, sure, I'll play it. I can't play it. There's no way I can play it, but okay. Yeah, I'll play it. Yeah. So, I mean, radio has changed so much. And I was a jock around the same time you were, I, I got into radio. I think it was like the summer of 93 mm-hmm. and yeah, I was out there. of radio by, by the second station I was at was in 95. Yeah. So it just, yeah. it's a lot different than it used to be. I mean, and now you can do internet radio and everything else. So it's, it's completely changed. Yeah. Um, so what made you decide to start actually being on air since it was such a fear for you? Actually, I had to. We yeah. we did something that was really unique at this three-station group up in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. We had, you know, the Hot AC Top 40 station that was the big dog. It had been there forever, legendary. And then we had this little news and talk station at the other end of the hall. Well, in between, there was this room that was dark except for a couple of blinky computer lights. That was the classic rock station. Now, I'd been a classic rock guy my whole tenure up until then. And I asked the new general manager, who was a friend of mine from the previous group. Mm -hmm. I said, "Uh, hey, Jack, what's with this big 101.5? He goes, ah, well, the owner bought it just so nobody would buy the signal and compete with the other one. But it's all run on classic rock satellite. And I looked at him. I go, yeah, but it blows. He goes, yeah, I know, but it doesn't cost us much. And we just play our commercials and that. And me and a couple other guys from who were the Rock 101 refugees after Rock 101 got sold, we're looking around going, I wonder if we could just take it off satellite for four hours and do a morning show live. Would Jack let us do it? And he did. Nice. We put together a morning show. And then uh, this other guy said, well, I want to do an afternoon show. So we did from 
say two to six an afternoon mm-hmm. show. So we were live satellite, live satellite overnight, live again. And one day somebody called up and says, oh my gosh, it's so great that we can actually call you now. We love you in the morning. We love you late afternoon. Why do you suck so bad at lunch? So, <laughs> so I did the midday yeah. show for a while. And, and just one day I, I, I told my boss, I said, yeah, come on. I've been in radio for seven years at this point. He goes, oh yeah, yeah, you do it. Never been on air. So I stunk my way through the first week. And finally, one day I just said, hey, big 101.5, Steve here. Hey, look, I might stink as a DJ, but if you tolerate me reading the weather for the next 40 seconds, I'll play you a really butt-kicking classic rock song. And my boss knocks on the door. I go, oh, here's Steve's firing. And he leans in and he goes, why the hell? Can't you just sound like that all the time? He goes, that was the best thing you said all week. He goes, man, just be yourself. Yeah. And it clicked. And I've been myself ever since, whether I'm on a radio show or on stage. And I think that's a lot to do with radio. There's such a mind game. For me, um, I had a friend, I want a pizza off the radio. And I became friends with the Jack. I went to Musicland because he was working there. Because, you know, once again, you don't make a lot of money in radio. So I met him. I'm asking him about a cassette. He, he's, I'm like, you're Todd Berryman. He's like, yeah. I'm like, I recognize your voice. So we started talking. I called him. He was going on his air shift. We became friends. And then I went on vacation. I came back. Before, though, he had me in the station to program the station. He's like, I'm bored. You play. You go ahead and program. I'm like, okay, fine. So I come back from vacation. He's like, I talked to my boss about you. Excuse me? He wants to, he wants to interview you. Okay. Why? I have wow. not gone to school for this. Not at all. I'm like, um, okay. It was the strangest interview I have ever had in my life because he didn't say, but maybe two sentences to me because he kept trying to get me to talk. Yeah. And so then I go in on a Tuesday and he talks to me for a few minutes. Like, all right, Friday's your first air shift. Uh, okay. Sure. <laughs> He's like, somebody will sit with you. They'll be there the whole shift. I'm like, okay. And mind you, I've been sitting with Todd, so I kind of know what I'm doing. Yeah. So this guy sits down with me and he's there for, I think, 30 minutes. And he looks at me and goes, you know what you're doing. You're more natural than most of the people I went to school with. So I'm going. So here it is midnight on a Friday night. He's walking out the door. I got the station to myself and it's just like, oh, okay. So yeah, that's how my radio career began. And it was totally just a fluke. Yeah, that, that's actually not a bad way to get into it because you didn't go in with all the, you know, the, the little tricks that people try to do, like, Hey, everybody will be right back on the flip side of these money makers. And you know, had, people who throw on the voice like that, which I've refused to ever do. I just do that to make fun of DJs. I had no clue. And, and I will say that I did do something bad as a dish jockey at the time. Yes. I was working top 40 and Whitney Houston's run to you was so popular and everybody kept calling and asking for that. So me being the wise ass that I was, I decided to dig out Brian Adams run to you. (laughs) And I played it. And of course I got a call back going, that's not the run to you. I was talking about like, yeah, sorry. But I mean, at a certain point, you don't realize you're in that booth and you're getting that same phone call. And yes, I was that girl one time calling over and over about a song, but people don't realize that. Yeah. 
So, yeah. So, I mean, it was a lot of freedom at that station and going to the next one when you're dealing with computers. And that's one thing I guess I'm saying to if anybody wants to be a disc jockey, and I know that's not the whole topic here. Mm. It's not what it used to be. You don't have the liberation of programming your stuff. Yeah. And the second station, like you were saying about your station, I would go in on a Sunday afternoon. And after that, it went back to computers. And so there was nobody at the station you could call and nobody's going to answer the phone. And that's kind of a disservice to the people that are really listening to radio because that's all they have. Yeah. We had at that classic rock station, we were were live for about a year and a half before everything started to disintegrate. We had the most amazing loyal group of people. And, And because we had carte blanche, the owner lived in Florida for the first six or seven months that we were doing this all live from six, a to eight P he didn't even know. Wow. The owner flew up for his annual visit, was walking mm-hmm. down the hall and saw somebody talking on the microphone in that room and said, who's that? And they said, oh, that's Ron, our afternoon guy. And he looks and he goes, we have an afternoon guy. He went up to the GM's office and the door closed. And I went, well, I'll be preparing the farewell tour now. Yeah. And I hid from the owner for till the next day. And he walked into my office and he knocked on the door and I turned around and went, uh-oh. He says, been listening to the radio station. I'm like, Okay. He holds out his hand. He goes, you guys are doing a hell of a job. Revenues are up. People are loving it. Jack told me about the community is embracing it. And you guys go out where nobody else dares to go. We were a station by the people for the people. We had the craziest bunch of listeners. And he goes, keep doing what you're doing. And I just held my breath for another 30 seconds till he left and fell in my chair and went, thank you. But that, that's still when you had a lot of independent owners. Yeah. Now, I mean, what Clear Channel bought up yeah. a ton of radio stations. So, and then now you have Sirius and you have Spotify, which is not really a radio station, but you can listen to it in your car and Pandora. And, you know, I mean, yeah. everything has changed so much. Yeah. I miss the old days. And, and our general manager, his name was, uh, his nickname was Evil Jack, but he was the nicest guy in the world. Evil Jack still says to this day, if he wins Powerball, he's going to buy a little radio station and put the team back together and be that type of radio again. So I'm still waiting for that call. I mean, if he calls, I'll be a part of it. Sure. Part-time. I can't, you know, I can't leave speaking no. and all this other stuff, but uh, yeah, just to be like that again, old school. Yeah. I'd be all over that. Well, we have, we have something like that here in my town, but it's more of I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's a lot of local and it gets mi- mix, mix, blah, mixed up. Yeah. And the funny thing is when you walk through our town, it sounds like you're at Disney because you have music playing through it. Yep. It's like, okay. So nice. you're 35 and mm-hmm. you just, were you overwhelmed? Yeah. Or just. Yeah. Overwhelmed, burnt out, had, had lived most of that 10 years working 50, 55 hours a week at the radio station. Of course, like you said, radio does not pay well. So I started DJing weddings on the weekend and I get up to as many as 104 events a year. Wow. So I was working six, seven days a week was just completely fried physically, mentally, emotionally, just frustrated and burned out, not sleeping well, not eating well. And just down, down, down. My cholesterol was almost a perfect bowling score. I mean, that's, that's one medical test where the high score does not win. Um, my highest was 283 out of 300. Wow. So in 200 is high. So I had that going for me and then just 
you know, marriage falling apart, lack of communication there. We weren't fighting. We just weren't talking to each other. Isn't it interesting, though, that you're in the industry of communicating, yet your marriage, you're not communicating? Yeah. Oh, I've heard that a lot. Believe me. And people laugh. And I said, it's true. Look at almost anybody in the communications industry. They do it professionally. They don't always do it personally. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it's true for me. I'm a writer and texting. You know, when I text, I do a lot of short replies because I put words out on paper all the time or I'm talking on the podcast. So I don't have a lot to say sometimes. It's just kind of like, okay, yeah. And then somebody will say, well, why are you, you know, are you mad at me because you're writing one word text? No, I just <laughs> I have, don't have it in me. Yep. I've got friends like that. I'll, I'll text a whole paragraph and they'll go, good. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the rest of it? I'm scrolling and it's not going anywhere. And I reach out to him. He goes, that's just how I always am. Like, I know, but I, you know, I text a whole paragraph to you. Just go good. I mean, throw me a smiley face or something, but just good. Yeah. So your marriage blows up. You don't file for bankruptcy. So you ride this one out, obviously. So what happens after this? What, what, what are your next steps after this? You, you hope for a safe place to land. And, and I'm very, very fortunate to have amazing family um, who, and, and the funny part was right about that time, I just built a recording studio at my dad's house, which is just a couple towns away. And so I was looking for an apartment and he finally said, Hey bud, you're up here working all the time. Anyway, I would help out in the yard because his health was starting to fail at that time. I was always up there helping him out in, in my recording studio. And at night I would just go back home. He says, we got a spare room down the hall. Why don't you just stay here? You're already working here all day long. Anyway, why go somewhere else? Just come hang here. So I did. And it turned out to be the greatest gift of all, not just, it wasn't done out of pity because his health started to really decline at that point. Mm -hmm. And I wound up doing everything he couldn't lift in mowing the lawn, taking care of the driveway, the plowing, the snow blowing, everything I was able to help out with the whole time I was there. My stepmom used to take me aside now and then when I'd feel really down about it. She say, you know, there's no rush for you to leave here. So, okay. And then she said, this is not to pressure you or make you feel bad in any way. But if you leave, we'll have to sell this house and that would break your dad's heart because he built it as our forever home. Okay. So it wasn't just out of pity. It wasn't to bash myself for being such a loser to blow my life into a million pieces. It was a safe place for me to add value for them. Keep them in the house they built that they wanted to live in forever and put my life in what would eventually be my business together. And, and rise back up out of the ashes. I used to say, you know, people say, oh, Steve, it was like the phoenix rising from the ashes. And I go, yeah, hold on there, Bubba. My phoenix rides a pogo stick. So <laughs> don't think I just rose out majestically in the clouds part of the music went and the angels went, ah, wasn't quite that easy. I think that's a lot of people think that, you know, it's either all or nothing and it's not. You have to figure out that, that middle ground because yeah some days it'll be perfect and things are going to be going away and you know going your way and then all of a sudden you're taking five steps back and you're like wait a second so i, I mean that that says a lot about life so did this i take it your your relationship with your father was already good but this must have fostered that even more with you being there especially with his decline in health yeah, we have been super close my entire life. Uh, we actually just lost him. It's been almost three years now, but we had been close my entire life. I had him until I was 50 years old, and I consider yes. myself very, very blessed. It wasn't dad and son. It was bud. 
Nice. That's what we've called each other since since I was 13 years old. The greeting, hey bud, hey bud, and then at the end, see you bud, see you bud. Nice. So even it, that was the last words of my eulogy to him after he passed away. I just looked over his ashes were there in a picture of him, and I just said, okay, folks, one more time, see you bud, and just walked away. We were just so tight. Uh, did carpentry together my entire life, taught me everything I know, left me all the tools, and we would listen to oldies music all the time. That was that was the given. 50s and 60s and early 70s oldies and, and stuff like that. So that is, is still so much a part of my life today that I'm just so blessed to have had him as my dad. And, and it still impacts me today because something great will happen. And I go, dang, dad would have loved that. Yeah. You know, and, and so I still talk to him all the time and he, he hides things because my stepmom still lives at, the, at their house. And sometimes I go down into his workshop. He was a carpenter looking for something. And I've given up looking. I just walk down there and I go, all right, bud, where'd you leave it? We have found 14 different items that way so far. Nice. No idea where they were. So he's still here. He's, he's here as part yeah. of this interview. Yeah. So maybe it was him that tripped over my other cord. Cause right before we went on air, I broke my other laptop. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was him. If so, uh, he owes me a screen and a laptop. <laughs> I mean, um, my husband passed away last year and I, I'll be here and something will fall down or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, honey, hi, I, I know you want my attention for something. What's up? Mm -hmm. You know, I get it. And I know some people would say, oh, well, that's crazy. But no, I mean, they're still here. They're still around you. And, yeah. you know, there's times when, yeah, I still talk to him. There's a picture of him on my desk back there, yep. but it's, it's one of those things. And sometimes, yeah, as crazy as it may sound, I'll feel his presence. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. And whenever so, something goes wrong, like, you know, the lawnmower wouldn't start one day, his riding mower was out being repaired. This was just six months after he passed and they have a big yard and the grass was getting high. So I pulled out the push mower. I'm like, this is going to take three hours, but I'll do it. Pulling, 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 wouldn't start. And finally I looked up, I go, Hey, I'm doing your dang lawn here. How about some help? The next pull puff of smoke pull after that started ran smoothly the entire time three minutes before i finished the final path his riding mower came back repaired and i looked up and i went really <laughs> maybe that's what he was trying to tell you is hold i think off. i walked a marathon that day <laughs> maybe he was just trying to say hold off the, the rider's yeah. coming yep. so um so all right so now you're living with your your parent your dad and your stepmom mm -hmm. so what was the next steps here i mean did you you have a recording studio there so what did you decide to do yep i was going to do some voiceover work i was going to do some kind of ad agency work uh doing some production because a lot of the local radio stations were downsizing and they weren't really doing what i felt were quality audio productions so i was going to do that and i kind of half-heartedly pursued it for about a year or so didn't make any money at it because people said, well, we got free talent in-house. Why would we hire you? Good point. So that was kind of fizzling out. And in August of 2003, it was a Friday afternoon. I had $3 left in my pocket that week. and was driving past this mini golf driving range in the town next to ours. Now, I'm a horrible golfer, but it's a great way to get out frustration. You can hit something and actually be rewarded if you hit it really, really hard and really, yeah. really far. So I went and got a, a $3 for a large bucket of golf balls, went to the farthest tee box so I could do the least amount of damage because I'm not a good golfer. 
So I was way down by the netting and underneath some power lines, like big metal poles and the big heavy cables. And a thunderstorm came ripping through. So I'm standing there barefoot in the wet grass with a metal golf club under power lines in a thunderstorm. And everybody except for me ran from the storm. You like to live dangerously, huh? Yeah, well, my life was pretty low at the time, and I actually held the club up and just swung it and said, go ahead, I dare you. Oh, Just dude. do it. And, of course, nothing happened, so I'm just hitting and hitting. Well, I hit my full bucket. It's still raining, thunder, lightning, and I see two buckets from guys that were near me who ran from the storm and took off. So I spent an hour hitting theirs, too. And at the end of it, I could barely lift my arms, and I got to my car, and the sun came out, and I just started laughing. I'm like, Okay. You know, I was having a really bad day. Now I'm laughing. So, okay, great. And within a day or two, I was on the phone with a brand new life coach. I just started working with, he was the husband of a friend. And she said, Hey, Steve, you're going through this stuff. My husband just graduated to be a life coach. You want to be his first client. He can test drive everything on you. Okay. So he's got his pen and his paper in his office. He's on the phone and he says, so how was your week? I said, put down your pen and listen to what I did. And I retold the story of the storm and the buckets and the golf balls and all that. And I just made it sound as funny as I could. It was very self-deprecating because that's where I was. But I made it as funny as I could. And he was roaring on the other end of the phone. He says, I got two questions. Are you this open and honest about your life with everybody? And I said, yeah, pretty self-deprecating. But yeah, sure. Have you ever thought of being a motivational speaker or a stand-up comedian? And I said, yes and yes. But I've never had the guts or the knowledge of how to pursue it. And he says, you're not going to believe this. On my desk is a brochure from a local community college that has an intro to stand-up comedy class that starts in two weeks. If I go, will you go? I'm like, I'll go, yeah. He said, you ever heard of Toastmasters? I said, yeah, they kind of like teach you how to speak. He goes, well, they teach you how to structure and you know, use your voice, your body, your language, all this stuff. He goes, I really think it would be a great little workshop place for you to workshop your, your stories and stuff. I said, okay. So within three weeks, I was attending both. Nice. It stand up for seven years, been speaking for 17, won all kinds of awards and Toastmasters had a ball. Nice. And here we are because of one afternoon and one, well, two questions from somebody who had already earned my trust and I valued his opinion. So he was just like my other friend, Danny, his name was also Dan who got me to follow my dream of being on the radio. He just asked the right question when I had no more excuses and I pursued it. I think that has a lot to do with things though, is you have to find that person. And I, I know some, my husband would be like, I told you the same thing yet. You listen to somebody else. But the thing is the people that we love can't always get through to us because we know they love us. We know that they may have this idea of, oh yeah, you're going to work. We, you should do it this way, but hearing it from an outside source that doesn't somebody that doesn't know you mm. fully that usually will hit home and resonate more. Yeah. And then just like what you just said, I said something the other day, my wife goes, you realize I've been telling you that for a year. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I know, you know, but she can do, you know, put me in the headlock and go, ah, oh, yeah, big dummy. And you know, she can get away with that. Somebody yeah. else, not so much. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's, I, I don't know why that is, but I, it happens to most of us. And the spouse or the best friend goes, but I've been telling you. And it's like, yeah, I know, but mm -hmm. they put it in a pretty bow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It just sounded different when they said it. It didn't yeah. sound like it came out of pity. Yeah, big dummy. <laughs> and yeah.
Um, yep. Who did you get to meet anybody in your radio tenure? Uh, a couple of musicians here and there. I mean, I got to get up really, you know, close and personal at some rock concerts at some, you know, just small local clubs. Uh, the band Aerosmith, who is my favorite American band ever, owned a club in Boston. And I was right there at the front of their little stage. I actually have Joe Perry's set list nice. from the stage that night, which is my most treasured rock artifact. Uh, favorite, favorite rock star I ever met was uh, Brad Delp from the band Boston, who's no longer with us. But Brad was the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, most humble human being, not even rock star, human being I've ever met. Nice. Just a phenomenal, phenomenally nice, nice, super talented, but would never act like it, human being. Nice, yeah. nice. Because I mean, sometimes we hear the stories about people who who hit the fame game and they become the biggest asses in the world. Yeah, I met a couple of those and I just choose to not remember them fondly. But yeah, but I, I did meet some some amazing people and, and people that were local too at the local clubs. And some of them are still dear, dear friends. And we would play one of their songs on the radio. And even 20 years later, we'll cross paths and they'll say, man, I remember the day you played my song on the radio. And thank you. I've, I've got a friend now who's down in Nashville getting some very famous people about to sing the songs he wrote. Nice. And we used to play him on the radio station. He still thanks me to this day. And it's been over 20 years. Well, I mean, that if that's what you aspire to be, because I mean, I was a musician at one point. Mm -hmm. If you aspire to be a musician and to finally hear your your song on the radio, that's, you know, that's the best thing in the world. Yeah. It's an amazing. It makes thing. you real. Yeah. It, it legitimizes you. And, and just so, you know, boy, I get to be heard next to my heroes. Yeah. that day and and it's really you think i think back on that um you know at the time it i was honored that there were some local people that were so talented it was it was a no-brainer for me to do that not realizing what it really really meant to them and now i appreciate it yeah so you did stand up and you did toastmasters and you're doing the life coach thing so now now where are we at we've, we've graduated I'm assuming the improv, the, the stand-up class mm -hmm. and we've moved with Toastmasters. So you're still living at your parents. What's going on now? Uh, right around 2007, I'd been doing stand-up for a couple of years, been speaking for a couple at that point and very, very big. Uh, what I do a huge part of what I do is visualization and vision boards as a legitimate, not like the secret, you know, law of attraction, genie in a magic lamp. I try to steer away from that. Where I started to, as I was putting my life back together, just started to hit win after win after win, uh, getting back in really good shape, eating better, losing weight, making more money, designing and developing the life that I wanted to have. And by then, I had already worked on myself for a couple of years on the, the guy that I wanted to be, to be part of the dream relationship that I wanted to enjoy forever. I didn't want to repeat the same mistakes of not being communicative in my first marriage. I, I didn't want to be one of those people who says, Steve's Facebook status is divorced and the next day in a relationship, <laughs> like so many people do. And they drive me crazy when they do that because they're really hurting themselves. So I spent a couple of years really working on myself. And in January of 07, I made that year's vision board. And I said, this is the year that I'm going to discover her, whoever she may be. And I put pictures of couples enjoying happy relationships, walking on a beach, standing at the railing of a ship at sunset and just enjoying. And in the first week of June, I wrote down, I am ready to fall in love. And June 16th of 07, I got an email 
from someone named Tina and I almost deleted it. I thought it was junk mail and something shiny happened and I didn't. The next day I read it, it turned out it was from a girl named Tina I graduated high school with. Hadn't seen her talk to her in 21 years, had a crush on her in high school and never had the guts to ask her out. And here she was from 1300 miles away because she lived in Florida at that point, sending me an email saying, hey, I saw your name on Classmates. Are you really doing motivational speaking, stand-up comedy, and you were on the radio? Shy guy who used to hide behind me in math class? Like, yep. Oh, we should keep in touch. And so text, phone call, email for the next four weeks, not even a picture of her. She had zero social media footprint. Started to feel really, I mean, strongly about her again. And just like the old conversations from when we were teenagers. And four weeks later, she said, can I tell you something if you promise not to freak out? I said, sure. Here's how I felt about you back in high school. How I felt about you when I heard your, saw your name, got your email, heard your voice. She says, I'm in love with you. Wow. This is after 21 years. I mean, she knew who, you know, she saw pictures of me because I'm all over the internet yeah. with my businesses. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I love you too. And we just celebrated our 14th anniversary. We've been together ever since. And she moved. Thank you. She moved back up here. We've been together ever since. We just bought this home uh, a little over three years ago. I'm in my new recording studio right now. She's upstairs in her office about six feet that way. And um, here we are. So that's, you know, it's all these things that I speak about. And people say, well, Steve, where'd you go to get certified? Uh, didn't. Well, what program did you invest in? Didn't. So this little chalkboard that you see behind me, I have a picture of me somewhere that says this guy lived it with an arrow pointing at my head. And I'm just like this. That's but, it. I lived it all. I took notes. I figured I, I out what worked and didn't work. And if it blew up in my face, I used it as a cautionary tale. So other people wouldn't do that. I'm like, see this over here? Yeah, don't do that. Here's what happened to me when I did it. I think that's a lot. Of, a lot of people think, oh, I need a certification. Um, I'm a tarot reader. So, and the reason mm -hmm. I bring this up is because for years I've been a tarot reader. I've been reading cards since the nineties. And I think about four years ago, all of a sudden you started seeing this pop up tarot certification. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. And, and the funny thing about life coaching, and I know I'm going to get slammed for this and I know I have coaches on here and everything else. Yep. The funny thing about life coaching that I've noticed is that people that go to get certified and I'm not saying everybody, so don't come at me, no. but people that go to get certified as a life coach. And then I look at their lives and then <laughs> I'm speaking from people that I actually know. <laughs> and I look at them and I go, your life is a freaking disaster. And you're going to coach somebody else on how to be, because you got a certification. Yep. So certifications, I hate to say it, aren't always what they're cracked up to be. You can give me $100 and I can say you're certified at whatever the hell you want to be. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's really legit. And I'm not knocking certification. I'm mm -hmm. not knocking coaches. Just vet people. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I spoke with somebody the other day who says, oh, yeah, I have a certification for NLP, uh, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is kind of a tool and a method Tony Robbins uses in a lot of his stuff. And somebody said, oh, my gosh, how, how long did it take for that? And she goes, 17 bucks on the Internet. And I got certified. Guess what? Guess why Steve doesn't have any certifications? Because I already have Sharpies and plates. I can write all the certifications I want. 
they're going to be just as valuable. The only thing I paid for because I needed it as a tarot reader in Illinois back in the 90s was my minister's license. Mm-hmm. So I'm a certified minister. Did I have to study to become a certified minister? No. Have I married people? Yes. And mm-hmm. I think it cost me $10 at the time. So yeah. Yeah. just saying. There's a woman out there. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying just like you, I'm not saying this to knock her. She's a genius in a way. She created the Vision Board Institute. Probably at her kitchen table. And she declared herself the authority in the world of vision boards and visualization. She created a program to officially instruct other people to present her stuff. Now, I've never seen her program, but I've seen her website. And she trotted herself out there as the expert. And she charges people a whole bunch of money for them to then be her instructors all across the country. And she will make you official and then tell you how much money you can make out there being an instructor. And how much money she gets to make off your back. Pretty much. Pyramid Pretty much. Again, not what? knocking her because <laughs> no. part of me says she's a genius, but yeah. I would just never. But, never but is that. that, is that not kind of a pyramid scheme? Maybe because people have said, Oh, did you get certified under this person? And when I stopped laughing, I said, no, because she ordained herself the grand dam of vision boards. And Hey, I'm that blue collar thinking, working hard scrabbling guy who came up out of the trenches and just took notes. And that's why I'll stack my program up against anybody's Jack Canfield asked for a copy of my program the day that I met him. Nice. So I'll take that as high praise. Now people say, did he make you a millionaire? No, he probably sold it for three bucks at the Jack Canfield yard sale. I don't care. He was interested enough in the way that I teach it to ask for a copy of the program. After a three-minute conversation, nice. I'll take that as high enough praise. Oh yeah, and and I want to I want to say something about what you were saying about before you met your wife. You know, when before I met my husband, I had to, I had had a prior marriage and everything, and I spent ten years alone. I spent ten years trying to figure out who I was because I was twenty-seven when we split, who I was, where I wanted to be, and and all those things. So I was ready, and that's the thing you can't. You know, as as cliche as it may sound, you can't sit there and expect someone to love you if you don't love yourself. I mean, I know that sounds so cliche, but it is such a true statement because you you still have a lot of baggage yourself you're working through. And until you get all that baggage taken care of, you know, nobody's going to be paying attention. They're going to you're you're a project then for some yeah. people. Yeah. And, and sadly, some people, I think they like being projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it just doesn't end well because they their wiring gets worse and worse and worse every time because they've taken energy from around them, but they haven't made the shift to, to a more positive place within themselves. And then after each one in their own minds, another failed relationship. Yeah. And it just sinks lower and lower into the abyss. And it, it's really sad to see, and, and I'm not a relationship counselor by any means no. or, or psychotherapist or psychiatrist. Um, I tell people, I said, look, I go forward from wherever you are. If you need to go back, here are some people you can speak with because I'm not a therapist, but when you're ready, let's move forward. And I always feel bad for the people that they just don't, they can't see it in their own mirror or they're not willing to. 
Yeah. And I just feel bad because I see all that greatness ready to break through, but there's that one thing or that one belief that they're holding on to that someone said and somebody put it in their head and in their heart in not a very nice way at some time in their life. And I've been very fortunate to have had some really great people uh, around me this whole ride. And I continue to attract even more. You and I are having this conversation because our energies bumped into each other yeah. on a website for, for podcasts and radio shows. And I said, yeah. I'm listening to one of your episodes going, I really want to talk to her. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you know, I think what you're saying about people saying things, it does put it in your head and it does create this dialogue and that dialogue. And I've talked about this before in other episodes, that dialogue, one little, one little moment can trigger that thing to come back. It's an addiction. I, I people like when I've said that to certain people, they're like, yeah, right. How is that an addiction? It is an addiction because you fall right back into the same pattern. Just like if you're the cokehead, just like if you're the alcoholic, you fall right back into the same pattern and people don't get that. You have yeah. to change your, you have to reframe things. You have to look at it and change the perspective. It's important if you do yeah. that. Yeah. And it's like when somebody wants to quit smoking, they would say, oh, first thing I do is, is, you know, I get out of bed and make a cup of coffee and go sit at the kitchen table and smoke a butt. Great. Tomorrow morning, don't go anywhere near the kitchen table. Go somewhere else. Go, go to the garage, go in your, go for a ride somewhere, something, but don't keep following back into the, when I'm here, even subconsciously, here's what I'm doing. Right. You know, I had to get away from a lot of those things. So I, what I've been doing now for almost 10 years, I get up every morning. The first thing I do is put pen to paper and I write three things in my gratitude journal. And what I write are the three favorite moments from the previous day. So I'm reliving something positive, no matter what my day looks like. I'm reliving something positive as soon as I get up in the morning. That's such a gift to give to your future self. Because in 2020, and, I, and believe me, I own two event-based businesses. Oh, in 2020, and they got, I mean, wrecking ball to the kneecaps on both. I wrote down almost a thousand great moments during 2020. So the people that say, oh, 2020 was a mess. It was this, it was this, it was this. No, it wasn't great. But I wrote down a thousand great moments of, of things that made me happy or feel grateful or lucky even, or, or just ways I'm blessed cool conversations I had with somebody. So I'm going to look back 10 years from now and see 2020 and everybody's going to go, oh, remember 2020? I'm like, yeah, this happened and this happened and this happened. It was okay. It taught me a lot. Taught me a lot about my business and how to find other ways to get out there, which are now serving me very well as ways I never thought to deliver what I do. Well, I, I think, you know, when you talk about 2020, you know, for me, I went through a big life-changing event and there was a lot of trauma involved in it, but ultimately it did teach me more about who I am. It taught me who my friends were. It taught me who was around to support me. And I think you have to look at, even though it was a crappy year and yes, we didn't get to do a lot of things. We still managed to live. It may not have been normal, but we still managed to live and survive. And we should be thankful for the, you know, that we did because there's some that didn't. Yeah. One of my dearest friends did not. And he was also my digital marketing guy, my mentor, my business coach, everything. And even now, you know, we lost him in March. Uh, even now, great things happened in my business that we planted the seeds for. He told me a year ago, he goes, brother, 
when this all comes back, he goes, you don't have to be on a plane every other day. We're going to move everything you do online. I'm like, really? And he goes, <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. Tell you what, that's what kept my business alive last year was everything he created with me. So now every time that succeeds, I look up and I go, Lonnie would have loved this. And, and so I still, I'm still so grateful to have these people and the right people around me. Not, not the people who come up out of the toilet complaining about life, want to pull themselves out, grab the handle and flush themselves down again. You know, we know people like that. Yeah. I deleted about 60% of my phone contacts a couple of years ago. Get rid of them all. In 15 minutes, I deleted 60% of my phone. Best thing I ever did. And when those people come back, because eventually some of them do come back, yeah. do you actually talk to them or do you just say no? No, they go to voicemail and that's uh, greatest gift in the world. Caller ID. Yeah. You look How over, do we you survive go, without it? <laughs> I know, right? It's, but I just look over, I go, mm, no. Yeah. And then I'll it, delete their message. I mean, if, if there's something they need, if I can do something real quick, but I'm not going to get together for coffee. I'm not going to go out and hang out with them. And I don't want them in my house. So well, say, you know what? I'm really busy. Uh, I, I don't have time. I'm really busy. It's the... It's a, you know, occasionally I'll get a message from somebody that in the past was a very toxic person and they're like coming back and it's just like, I can't do this. Yeah. It wasn't good before. It's not, I gave you three or four chances. No, we're done. Yeah, we're done. I, I wrote an article about that uh, earlier this week. And I said, when these people come back, just understand, did you already give them a second chance, a third chance, a 10th chance? When are you going to just scrape them off your shoes and leave them there? You know, you don't have to keep stepping in this same, st you know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I don't do it to judge people. I just say, Hey, look, I honor myself more now than I ever did before because I was a chronic people pleasing pathological rescuer of the broken, like a magnet. And I was always the person that they'd hang with just long enough to feel good about themselves again, and then bail on me and go out and get hurt again, and then crawl back and need that healing. And I just finally said, no, because I, I was like the circus clown who would get pies in the face and trip all day long for people to laugh and they go home happy. And the clown walks home alone in the dark crying. Yeah. I wasn't going to do that anymore. I did that for decades. No way. Not anymore. Well, you know, my therapist, I had a conversation with her about picking certain people and how they, they have similarities. And the one thing she's like, oh, it's like a pothole. And I've talked about this before. You're walking down the street and there's that pothole. You can avoid it, but you're going to fall right into it. And mm -hmm. so you fall into the pothole and you get yourself out of it. See the pothole again. It won't happen this time. You fall in it again. By the third time, you're kind of like, I'll scoot around it maybe. You still yeah. kind of hit it by the fourth time. You're like, I'm changing the route. Forget this. Yeah. Cause you yeah. have to for your own yeah. sanity. And, and the thing is, and we have to be clear about this, even though you get rid of those toxic people, the universe has a way of always going, you think you're done. I got oh, yeah. somebody dressed up in the same package. You just don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. But they do get easier to recognize. Yes. You, you hear the language or you hear the tone or something. And, Yep. You know, the little antenna goes up and you go, yeah, you know what? I need to honor myself here. Yeah. I'm not available. Yeah. You know, you know, the greatest sentence in the world that I've learned over the past decade, especially. No. <laughs> Steve, can you help me with this? No. 
not available. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and, and sometimes they want longer explanations. They go, Hey, look, I'm just not available. I get two, well, almost, almost one business to run because the DJ business is now four events left after almost 28 years, four left. Wow. Can't wait. Burning all the boats. Everything is 100% back on just the speaking and the coaching and the vision board work. Um, no more distractions. It's, this is it. And so now I'm even less available to anything else because everything I have is being poured into my future and helping as many people as I can and providing value anywhere I can. So that's, it's all narrowed in. I don't have time. No, I don't care if you're going to give me pizza to help you move. Hire a mover. Well, and this, this is one thing I want to say. People pleasers, and if there are people pleasers listening, the hardest thing you will ever do is say no. Because <laughs> initially you're going to be like, okay, how are they going to react? And yes, they can be very ticked off with you. They can get very nasty with you. But ultimately, if they're really your friend, they'll get over it. And they'll learn that you've set this boundary. Mm -hmm. So no is a very important word to learn. Yeah. And when people don't understand that and they don't get it, I have a special hashtag that I use and it's not harsh. It actually makes people laugh. Hashtag up yours. <laughs> and, and people, and every time I say it, people laugh, but then they go, you know sure. what? That's actually like a humorous comedic way to say, Hey, look, just stay away from me. Yeah. You know, go do your thing. That's fine. But I'm just done. You know, I need to honor myself, my I always, I, I never call my wife, Tina. She's always my Tina. Mm -hmm. You know, my Tina is the most important human being in the world to me. And I left a note for her the other day and just said, you are my favorite person. And so nothing comes between the two of us. If I promised her, I'm going to do something. I don't care who asks. I'm not available because my heart and my mind and my sanity say, honor this woman who has been the greatest gift that has ever happened to me in my life. No holds barred. It does not matter. And I think that has a lot to do with relationships. Um, when I look at the difference between my first marriage and my second marriage, the first marriage, he didn't appreciate what he had. And maybe yeah. I didn't in some ways either. I was more about the kids, his kids. Mm -hmm. For my second marriage, we appreciated who we were. We appreciated what we have. And if that meant a song coming on in the damn store and him deciding, hey, let's do a slow dance, and we had a cut. We had this lady follow us around a store. We were down an aisle, and she comes down the store, and she's looking at us. And I'm like, it was creepy. Okay, it was creepy. And I'm like, what is this deal? Went to a different aisle. She still she comes down that aisle, and I'm just like, okay. We get in the checkout line. She's in front of us, and she just looks at me, and she goes, I just have to say this. And I'm like, what? She goes, you remind me of my me and my departed husband. You guys are so lucky and so in love, and it's just so beautiful wow. to see. And that was just like so touching. And, you know, you appreciate if you appreciate your partner that much, the world sees it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that they see it or not, but that just shows how much energy and love that is there. So yeah. that's what I'm getting at. It's like if, if you really appreciate what you have and they I mean, I'm not saying they have to make you happy because that has to come from you, too. Mm hmm. But, you know, like for me and my husband, we had this little blue panda bear. It's a blue and white panda bear. And if he was having a hard day and he didn't want to talk about it, he'd give me the blue panda or I'd give him the blue panda. And I know that may seem stupid to some, but it was communicating without getting into the gory details. And when we were ready to talk about it, then we would. Yeah. 
like the best advice I would say for somebody who's in an argument with your spouse, don't sit there and keep poking the bear. Don't sit there and just hammer. Walk away because it's a good chance they're not ticked off at you. Yet. Yeah, I mean, if you keep pushing, they're gonna you're gonna get involved <laughs> in that fight. But oh, yeah. most of the time, if you know, that's one thing I learned. My first marriage, I didn't argue at all. My second marriage, if we got into an argument, I'd walk away, I'd come back. See, I had a lot of health issues. And I'd be like, so what's going on? It's like, well, I was mad because I couldn't see this and I got frustrated. Okay. Yeah. So it had nothing to do with me. But you have to you have to be willing to step back from that. Yep. And that's what I said that. Yeah. And we will never dance in public. Tina is, is about the most, the, the least demonstrative person out there. But the funniest part is her boss will reach out to her and say, oh my gosh, I just saw Steve's page on, page on Facebook. I love when he calls you my Tina. And Tina turns 20 shades of red and she's like, okay. And, and <laughs> I mean, she, she loves yeah. it and I know she does and she appreciates it. And we know what we have in each other, yeah. but it's just funny that I'm the more, and, and it's funny because I'm actually an introvert. I'm the one who's a little more public with mm -hmm. stuff like that and calling her my Tina and, and praising her up and down. Uh, but I won't do it in public if it would embarrass her. Right. So, and, and that's also a line you have to know, like what's their love language and what are they comfortable with? And, um, you know, you'll learn that over the years when you really work on yourself. And I mean, I'm 53 years old. This is the happiest version of me there's ever been. And, and awesome. I'm very honored to be able to say that because I've put in the work. I know what my vision is. I know what it was 15 years ago before we got together. I saw all of this. Matter of fact, I found a list of goals from 2010 the other day. I was looking for one thing, never found it, but I was supposed to find this list. I opened up a journal and this sheet of paper fell out and I looked at it and it said more time with Tina, vacation with Tina, buy a home with Tina, build a barn because I always wanted to have a barn as a creative space, office and recording studio. Well, I have this $74 worth of barn board on one wall of my recording studio. Here's my barn. Yeah. We want a cathedral ceilings in our home. The house we found has everything we wanted and we never saw it online. We're out driving for one day. Tina saw this listing and there happened to be an open house and we were in that town driving around. It's the house we bought all these things, seven yeah. out of about 16 things on the list we've achieved pretty amazing. And that's the thing. If you, you focus, you can do that. Um, I will, I will add in a caveat. The store wasn't really crowded where we were dancing, so it wasn't a big deal. But <laughs> yeah, security was not walking around no, with a finger no, in their ear no. saying, We're going to watch these two because I think what they're doing is they're stuffing rolls of toilet paper in each other's pockets. Yeah, that's yeah, what they're no, doing. No, no. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, like this house, we did the same thing. I mean, it's like we wanted a mailbox. I wanted a mailbox. I had a planter. Sure enough, that's what we got. You know, so you can put that out there. You can put that message out there and get what you want. But as a, you know, you knew, you knew what you wanted in your life. And that's the thing you hit, you had to hit that dark space. You mm -hmm. had to go and realize that life wasn't good. Back to my radio journey. It's funny because I come back from that vacation and I said to my husband, my then husband, my first husband, and I said, I feel like my life is stagnating because we went to Dallas and New Orleans. I saw my family and we came back to Indiana and I'm just like, I feel like my life is stagnating. And the phone rang and it was my friend saying, Hey, my boss wants to talk to you. 
So just kind of like with your friend, why aren't you doing this? Sometimes when somebody makes you an offer or puts something out there and it may seem outlandish, don't always be so dismissive of it. Yeah. Vet it. Yeah. But don't be dismissive because you never know what that one thing may lead. And if you're sitting there and you have a feeling that I really want to do this, but I'm scared to death. Try and push through it. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Or, or at least do what I encourage people to do is, is, you know, so many people say, but Steve, you walked away from your job and you built this great company. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of years in between there that I beat myself up mercilessly for. And so look, if you have a goal, hope, dream, or desired outcome, start to taste a little bit of it. It's like people that, that want to start their own side hustle. Well, great. Find something you can do that only takes three hours a week of your time. Or people that want to give back, you know, but, oh, I can't go volunteer anywhere because I'm busy. Great. Take a half hour once on a Saturday morning, go to a local shelter and offer to walk the dogs. My sister did that. She, she wanted to give back. So she devoted one Saturday a month, which became two and I think three, to volunteering somewhere. She would go with, with these nonprofits that would take care of kids with special needs and they would go bowling and they would do activities. So for an hour... Once a month on a Saturday, she would go do that. And what it did was it refired her spirit. So she was able to tolerate her 60 hour weeks at work because she had that sliver of time. I said, if you have that sliver and it's, it rejuvenates your spirit, you can tolerate more that entire week of whatever it takes to get to that next sliver. And you just live sliver to sliver as long as you can. And, and not just get down into the, I got to get rid of this whole thing and rebuild my entire life. Because believe me, the ride down when you clip your own wings is not pleasant. Yeah. I did it. It did a lot of damage for a lot of years. Yeah. Don't recommend it. No. But you can survive it. I did. You can survive it if you want to. And that that's one thing I will say, you know, if anybody's listening to this and they do have those dark thoughts that, oh my gosh, my life isn't going to get any better. Don't think that way because you never know what tomorrow tomorrow could offer. You know, something amazing could happen tomorrow. You just have to think that way. So don't, while it's not easy, just keep going forward. Keep being, keep being motivated. Yep. Keep and trying. if you do need to, you go talk to the right licensed people mm -hmm. who can help guide you to that next daylight, daybreak, that next bright spot, that next moment of hope. There's no shame. You know, I just happen to have the right people around me and the coaches and family and, and everybody. Not everybody's as lucky as I am. No. So I encourage people, if you're in that place and you're really not sure, please speak to somebody. And, yeah. and I've got a dear friend. His name is Max. He's out in California and he's an addiction counselor. The reason he's been an addiction counselor for the past 12 years is because of all his years of being an addict and an alcoholic. And the three or four times he spent in jail in the lowest moments of his life, and he said, brother, I would never want anyone else to go through that. He rededicated himself. He's going to celebrate 18 years sober this, this September. And he now works with people every single day who are at the lowest points of their life, helping them find hope because he did it. Yeah. And that's, that's what he shares is his story. He wrote a book and I'm actually the voice of the audiobook, So I'm him nice. <laughs> for two hours of an audiobook, And I just love being around people like this. Who, who see the joy, the hope and the potential joy in others and, and help them to find it themselves. And that's, that's what I try to do with people. 
this is off topic, but it's on topic because Nikki Six posted today on Instagram that he's been 20 years sober. Yeah. And if you ever follow his Instagram now, and if you watch The Dirt, this is a man who basically was dead. He was dead at one point, and yeah. now he's thriving. I mean, he lives in Montana, and the pictures he posts are amazing. Yeah. So, you know, don't give up hope. You know, that's that's the one thing I will say, especially, you know, and some of my listeners who have followed me for this whole journey, the very first thing I did was talk about saving my mom the first time. My mm-hmm. mom didn't, she gave up hope. Yeah. And you can't do that. You can't, because you never know what what life holds. And people ask me, Steve, do you ever have a bad day? I have plenty of bad days. Well, what do you do? I said, I get out of this recording studio and I go into town and I hold the door for someone or I make somebody laugh or I go to the deli counter and get some ham and cheese and I make them laugh. Every single time I come home, I'm better. Or I go rescue a shopping carriage and, and on a windy day where it could roll and dent someone's car, I put it in the corral or bring it all the way back to the store. And if I see somebody else coming in, I go in full on used car salesman. Hey, folks, need a carriage? It's a rescue from the parking lot. Tell you what, hand grips are washed down. Wheels hardly wobble. You'll love it. <laughs> so the only are- time it's been refused was somebody only needed a little red basket, but they were laughing. And that's I a came gift. home better. That's a gift. Yeah. So when do you start selling used cars? Never. I know somebody who used to sell used cars back in the 70s and 80s, and he used to have to wear a disguise somewhere because people were actually giving him death threats. Wow. Because he was he was a good salesman, which means he got a lot of people to buy garbage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and that's all I needed to know I learned from him <laughs> to never be in that industry. <laughs> so, I guess to ask the question, so was it better to blow up your life? Yes. Only at the be- moment, no. <laughs> I'm, well, I can't really say at the moment, no. At the moment, I knew I had to do something. And my doctor even told me a few years later, he says, look, given your family history, you would have been dead by 40 with your blood pressure and, and being out of shape and eating bad. He said, given your family history, you wouldn't have gotten one of those tickle strokes. He goes, you would have had a massive stroke by the time you were 40 had you kept going that way. So once I heard that, I said, okay. So it wasn't just a got to get away from this. It was, I've got to get on a better path, healthier, happier, more creative, less fried. So it, you know, yeah, I had to do it when I did. Uh, I could have been more tactful about it, but I don't regret a thing because my life wouldn't be where it is right now without it. It was almost kind of like your soul knew. Yeah. Yeah. My soul pulled the ripcord and jumped and And it's funny because right after I had already done two skydives prior to that. And I did a solo a couple of years later and people knew that my life wasn't in a great place. And they go, you're going to pull the shoot, right? I'm like, what? And they go, well, you've been kind of depressed. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pull the shoot. But you know, it's funny because I use that as a stage story now. Yeah. Uh, the biggest lesson they tell you when they're teaching you to do a solo is whatever happens, you will know what to do. We're going to put everything in your head. So if something goes wrong, you'll know what to do. And they were right because I pulled the chute a thousand feet too low because I forgot to go. I forgot the sequence mm-hmm. horizon, altimeter, check, right, check, left, clear. And at 6,000 feet, I was supposed to wave off the two guys who were holding my wrists and ankles and then do the sequence one more time. And I forgot the sequence and I'm sitting there trying to think of it going, I'm still doing 120 miles an hour face first <laughs> towards the ground. So I pulled the chute at 5,000 feet instead of six. 
And then the lines were tangled. The chute opened, but I couldn't steer it. And I was heading out of, out of state because this place was right on the border. Mm-hmm. And so you'll know what to do. I looked up. I saw which way they were twisted. I kicked my legs in a circle, got them untwisted. Had to look over my shoulder for the airport, turn back around, go that way. And then I forgot to turn on the little radio so that they could tell me how to land. So I was 100% on my own. Wow. And I always tell the story. I said, the only way I could have screwed up this jump anymore is if I dove out of the plane and went up. Wow. <laughs> I screwed up every part of it. And with 50, they say, you now when you're 15 feet off the ground, yank both of them the chute will billow and you can run to a stop and i remember looking down going i wonder how close 15 (laughs) (laughs) skipped across the dirt and and pebbles like a stone on a pond and i'm sure you're laying there uh it was it was i i've actually i'm six foot one now i used to be six two and when my chiropractor asked what happened i tell him that story and and how were your knees and your feet and your ankles after Uh, that i got my hip x-rayed the other day uh that was 18 years ago that that happened and and i occasionally there's a flare-up of whatever so i just like to use that story i probably just slept wrong i mean i'm 53 come on i sneeze and something breaks this is true but but the skydiving story is a really cool way to say that's how i hurt myself (laughs) yes it's a it's a much more uh dare i say don't take offense manly way too yeah it's a manly way it's not like yeah i sneezed and and i heard my back pop yeah, I was trying to open the car door and I sneezed and yeah, my back went out and yeah, yeah, it's not, not as nice. Yeah. So no. I thank you for your time and get, thanks guys for tuning in to the better Two podcast. Your listenership is greatly appreciated. If you like what you hear, remember to hit subscribe. We also have our videos on YouTube. They're usually post the same day as the podcast and you should check it out. If you have a question or you would like to be a guest on the show, please drop me an email and I'll be glad to talk to you about it. The email is Donna, D-A-U-N-A, at thebetter2podcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in and catch you next time.